So if you have your Bibles, we'll turn to John. And we're in John 12, and we'll read 27 to 36. I'll pray as we come to God's Word. Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you that it is living, that every word comes from you. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So John 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken, has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light that is among you for a little while longer. The light that is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And may the Lord bless this reading of his holy word. So it opens with Jesus saying, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And we've seen this building in our study of John's Gospel, but especially in the last two chapters, John 11:45, the little subheading is the plot to kill Jesus. And in John 12, 9, there is a plot to kill Lazarus. So the opposition to Jesus, to the Gospel and to the Kingdom is growing. And in chapter 12, Jesus was anointed at Bethany, and he understood it to be in part an anointing to prepare him for his burial. And the triumphal entry in chapter 5 signifies again the beginning of the last week of Jesus' ministry. And then, as the last week, some Greeks are now seeking Jesus. And what is the significance of that? Well, Jesus is the Messiah and a light to the Gentiles. Jesus is the one who has already said that he had sheep who are not of the sheepfold, meaning not just Jews, but also Gentiles or Greeks. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not just one race or ethnicity. And the fact that these Greeks are seeking him is one more sign that his hour had come. In verse 23, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, which prompts then verse 24, where Jesus explains, so they do not understand it fully, that the glorification of the Son of Man is paradoxically going to be fulfilled in his death. That unless a seed falls into the ground, 
It cannot grow and bring forth a harvest. So the hour then, and this is quite common language in John's Gospel, the hour is the moment of climax, the fulfilment of Jesus' ministry. And for Jesus, it is his death. We are really familiar with that, but think about that for a moment. Most people reading through their biography, and now they have come for the hour, the moment for which they have come. What would that be? Well, if we think of Winston Churchill, that clearly would have been World War II. Or if it's some great leader when he ascends to an office or elected as prime minister or something like that. But here the hour has come doesn't mean a new title for Jesus or not one that they see immediately or some new office, but his death. For many people, when they speak about we were born for this hour, it's something momentous. Yes, it was for Jesus, but in a very different way to where, what is normally meant by that. The clock of redemptive history is about to strike midnight. That is what this means. And the gravity of this moment, the hour upon them, I think prompts a series of responses, which is what, what I want to look at this afternoon. The responses. And the first response I want you to see is from Jesus himself. And it, he says, now is my soul troubled. And that word is tetarake, and it doesn't mean troubled in the way we would use it. If we, if we would say troubled, we, genu we genuinely would say a little fretful, a little anxious. It's sick, but it, the word actually means revulsion, horror, the deepest anguish of the soul. Jesus is troubled, but that is what it means. That is what the word would have meant. Repulsed. And remember, Jesus is a real man with real emotions and feelings. He had the ability to experience pain. And what he was about to experience would be unlike any other suffering that anyone in the world had known. And Jesus knew that was coming. As a man, he could experience it. But as the God-man, he had supernatural insight into what was coming. He understands the manner in which he will die. He will be lifted up on a cross. A human Messiah may be able to intuit that it is getting hot around here and there are people coming to kill me and I guess my time is coming to an end. A human Messiah could intuit all of that. But a human and divine Messiah understands that that death that is coming will mean atonement for God's people and will mean the torment of God's wrath for the Christ. So the hour is coming. Jesus is not going to die as a hapless victim. He is not going to die as a martyr so we can feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus didn't die so we would feel sorry for him because that's not a hard emotion to come by. I think a lot of us have been struck in the last year by the amount of stories of human sadness and tragedy and your heart goes out and you feel very sorry for people. It'd be, you have to be really hard-hearted not to have felt sorry for the Queen recently, sitting alone 
you know, at the, you know, at the burial of her husband. But I think there are a lot of people who have confused pity for Jesus with faith. There'll be a lot of people who say he helped people. He died. The cross was horrible. I feel so bad for him. But Jesus was very clear that that was not faith. He was very unsentimental at times. If you remember when those women were following him and weeping. And he says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves for the judgment that is about to come. Many good people have died as martyrs, but none of them except for this one did so as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. That is what is meant by the hour is coming. And it, this, this is clearly parallel to the cry that comes from Gethsemane when he says, as Luke records, Father, if you're willing, remove the cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it's the same sort of cry. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. As a real man, there is a wrestling. Is there another way? Is this the only way? But he says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to shrink back. I want your way, Father, to be my way. It's a puny comparison any time we compare what Christ suffered with what we might suffer. But we do suffer. And where might you this afternoon have to consider the choice that you're facing? Where do you have an occasion to shrink back or to press forward into fulfilling your purpose? Jesus comes to his hour. And he knows my soul is in anguish, I'm troubled. My death is round the corner. And he knows he's going to suffer in a way that no one has ever suffered before. But this is the only way to accomplish my mission, for God to be glorified, so I do it. On an infinitely smaller scale, we face similar crossroads. We are tired. We are burdened. We are angry in ways that are sinful, that Jesus would not have been. And yet we find a resolution in the Spirit that this is the way to fulfil what God has called me to be. Maybe as a friend to someone, that phone call, or maybe as a spouse, and you know in verse 27 your soul is troubled, and you're saying, Father, there has to be another way out of this. And will we have the same resolve that Jesus did? I think it definitely applies Nevertheless, God, your will be done, that you may be glorified in this. Where this week do you have something hard to do that you do not want to do? I usually find myself thinking about those things on Sunday afternoon or Sunday night. Um, what's coming up this week that I don't want to do? <laughs> and maybe a phone call or a conversation. There are some things I really like doing, and then there are things I forget to do, like having coffee with friends. But... Um, Ministering in a hard place. And you have a choice to shrink back from suffering or to do the thing that you know would bring glory to God. So the first response around this hour, the hour, is from Jesus. And I think it is a response, a cry of anguish. But the second response to the hour is from the Heavenly Father. 
I apologise, I should have put this up, but this is, that's in verse 28, where it says, A voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now there are only three times in the Gospels that the Father audibly speaks. At Jesus' baptism, at his transfiguration, and at this moment leading up to the crucifixion. And what do these three moments have in common? Well, his baptism is a good moment. The transfiguration is a great moment. Leading up to his death is a different moment. But all those moments, the baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration on the mount, and this hour, the hour, now it's arrived, they're all three moments when Jesus' identity is being revealed. And his baptism, this is my son, this is the one in whom I'm well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, some of the disciples see Jesus full in full transcendent resplendent glory. And here, in the hour, when his glory is going to be most clearly manifest, again, a voice speaks from heaven. It is really a figurative but literal pulling back of the curtain of heaven. The moment when Christ's glory and identity are being seen. And at that moment, God, as it were, I like to think of this, part in the screen, part in the curtain from heaven, and speaking audibly to authenticate who Jesus is. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now how will the Father be glorified in the Son? The servant who sets aside his own will to do the will of his Master glorifies, brings honour to, shows worth of, magnifies, points out as supremely precious his master by his submission, especially when that submission will lead to death, even death on a cross. So the worth of the father, the father's worth, is demonstrated in the unswerving obedience of the son. The obedience of the son brings honour to the father. And so what brings more honour and glory and shows forth the surpassing worth and majesty of God the Father than when the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, could with unswerving obedience do everything that the Father had appointed for him. Verse verse 30, Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine meaning the crowd and for the disciples. They do not understand it. They think it is thunder. Maybe it is an angel. I'm sure that voice was some comfort to Jesus. How could it not be? But the purpose was explicitly for the crowd, that this is to authenticate. Though they did not have the ears ears to hear it properly or the eyes to see, to authenticate the one who will die who will undergo what you think to be the most unlike, unchristlike suffering imaginable, this one indeed is my beloved son, the one who is bringing the Father glory. 
Perhaps later the disciples, though they don't understand it now, will look back. Jesus is already thinking of the other side of the cross and the empty tomb that the disciples could say, now we see. When they heard the voice from heaven at the baptism and transfiguration and at the hour, God himself was authenticating Jesus and his mission. There were plenty of messianic pretenders in those days. Who was to say that Jesus was the real deal? Remember, at that time, he was not Jesus, the one who had hymns and songs and great choirs singing about him. At that time, he was Jesus. Some of us grew up with him. He, he looks like us. He sounds like us. The Messiah, the Son of God, the audible voice of God from heaven authenticated that this man who grew up with them, who looked like them, sounded like them, was one of them, but yet he was the one from heaven. Can you trust this Jesus? Is he worth following? We too, as his disciples, are asked. In fact, we are instructed to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Now, I was thinking about this, that I live by grace and by mercy a pretty good life. I really do. I am not the poster boy for Job-like suffering. Some of you maybe, most of you probably are not either. We all have suffering. We all have hurt. We have lost loved ones. My boys were only asking me about my father recently and you suddenly realise the pain of that. We have illnesses. We have relationships that are far from perfect. But it is possible in a place like this, a country like this, that we can feel that life owes us something. Certainly we live in an entitled age. And maybe God owes us something. And you know what? Following Jesus should from start to finish make my life better. What it is going to be better, it is absolutely going to be sweeter at the end. But we're not reading our Bibles if we think by signing up for Jesus, things are going to be easy in life. That is not the Jesus here. I'm not sure where that came from, but if you want that Jesus, it's going to be a false gospel. Because Jesus died on a cross and said, follow me, take up your cross. So can you trust this man when he tells you hard things about repentance? Hard things about sex? Hard things about heaven and hell? Take up your cross, follow him. The first response in the dawning of the hour is from Jesus. The second response is from the Father. And the third response is, I call it the spiritual world. And what I mean by this is that the soon to be crucifixion of the Son of Man is setting in motion a series of cosmological and salvation events. And we see four of them here. Verse 31 is the judgment of the world. Now we know that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, to save the world, but it has been clear throughout John's Gospel that there is a flip side of that. That the world will be condemned for rejecting the Messiah who came to offer salvation. So yes, when the hour arrives as it is here, 
the our coming means judgment for the world. Now, listen to God speaking through the scriptures that indifference to Jesus will not go unnoticed. Do you not think that there is an awesome heaven for the really on fire, devout Christians and then there is a hell if you're Hitler or something and the rest of the people who didn't hate Jesus and went to church a couple of times a year they'll go to heaven too. And let us not kid ourselves that no one is going to end up indifferent to Jesus in this story. They end up crucifying him or being willing to die for him. There is, there is no middle ground. The situation with Jesus in the first century is increasingly the situation in the 21st century. You're either for the Bible or you're against it. There is no middle ground. You're going to be for Jesus or you're going to hate Jesus. So the world will be judged. The second is the ruler of the world. Again in verse 31, the ruler of the world will be cast out, which is a reference, of course, to Satan, the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, the one in charge of cosmic powers over this present darkness, Ephesians 6. This one is cast out. Not that he no longer exists, or that the devil is no longer operative in the world, but rather that the decisive battle has been fought and the devil lost. What a surprise that must have been to the devil. Jesus on the cross. And I do not know what the devil knows and how the devil thinks. And what he's saying at that moment to his legion of demonic angels. But there must have been some sense of, we did it, we won, he is dead, he is in a tomb. They must have thought they had won. I don't like C.S. Lewis's theology on this at all, by the way. But there is the sense of they thought, like the white witch did, that the, that the victory had been won. And at that moment when the devil and all his minions and all those who hated Jesus, they thought for all the world that they had proven to be victorious, that they'd got rid of him. And it was at that moment that... Utter destruction, knocked off his throne, irrevocable defeat, cast out. The devil is still around, he prowls around like a lion. He yelps and barks like a dog. And if you let him get too close, he can bite and damage. But he is chained. He is defeated. The third is Jesus says, I will be lifted up. Verse 33, this indicates the kind of death that he would face, being lifted up on a cross. And there is a double meaning, of course, lifted physically above the ground on the cross, but in that moment, lifted up in his glory. And the fourth is, Jesus will draw all men unto himself. We've seen the Greeks, the Jews coming to him. All men may seem repulsed to him at that moment on the cross, when everyone wants to flee and hide and leave him. And yet at that very moment when it seemed that everyone was repulsed by this Jesus, he was drawing all men unto himself, all kinds of people. Jesus is do always doing more than we can see. And in our lives, 
He is doing more than we can see. When it seemed to the devil that he had won, Jesus on the cross, there was more going on. When it looked like these people were repulsed by this Jesus, he was drawing people to himself. When it looked that he was in the moment of his greatest humiliation and shame, it was his moment of triumph and glory. Jesus is always doing more than you can see. We talk in such hyperbole, don't we? I mean, even in our language today, I've been in Vienna, you know, I've got a, I, I'm afraid, and hopefully they're not so much, a lot of Americanisms, even in my language, but everything is historic, awesome. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's the best. And the celebrity culture is really the worst. There is a film, I don't know whether you've ever seen it, probably haven't, but called Miss Congeniality, where the main character, Sandra Bullock, pretends to be a celebrity star, but she's actually an undercover policewoman. And what makes me laugh is every time is when the stars say parrot fashion, what they want to see in the world is world peace. They want to change the world. And it's what a lot of people, you know, a lot of people think that they can change the world. Do not be mean to anyone. Work for world peace and change the world. It's okay to be mean to nasty little bigots like Christians. That's an honourable thing to do according to the corrupt value system of the world. But keep on changing the world. Celebrities haven't changed the world. I remember, I think at the beginning of lockdown, one celebrity thought it would be a good idea to post a picture of himself crying. It doesn't really change the world. They may have a billion hits on YouTube, but they're not changing the world. It's such hyperbole all the time. Such hyperbole, except here. Because this man did change the world. Everything changed because of this hour. The hour was coming that would change the world. There was a pop song and... I don't know, and again, I probably heard it from the few times I had Radio 2 playing in my car. I know it's not Radio 4, but it was Radio 2, if I, you know, if there's something that drove me nuts. But it said in one of these verses, there were teenagers singing to each other or something, that after our love, the world will never be the same. And I actually laughed because <laughs> that is quite an exaggeration, because it is the same. They fell in love and nothing changed for the rest of us. But this is the one time when we can speak with hyperbole. It is the one time, because the world was never the same. The world has never been the same. This hour was unlike any other hour, because it set in motion, unleashed these cosmological events, the judgment of the world, the, the casting out of Satan. These things were unleashed and happened because of this hour. So, we can say with hyperbole, this was the hour. The world will be judged. Satan is kicked up, kicked off his throne. Jesus is lifted up, drawing all people to himself. In a little corner of the world that most people have never heard of. But at that moment, the hour had come and nothing would be the same. Which leads me to the fourth response. The th we had Jesus, the Father, and then if you like, all of those things, those, that, those spiritual world, they uttered their response to this hour. And the fourth response is a question mark, is my response, is your response. 
Here, it was the response of the crowds or the disciples. Jesus responds, my soul is in anguish. The Father responds, I will be glorified. The cosmos responds, judgment is coming, the ruler is cast out, people are being drawn to Christ. What about us? And Jesus is pressing this very point home to the crowd. They are still confused. Verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They have got a lot of questions. They do not understand what happened to the Christ. They do not understand what the Son of Man means. They do not even know who is the Son of Man. And Jesus, as he often does, works very hard to make himself obscure. Because Jesus really is only interested in being heard by those who have ears to hear. If you do not really want it, if you do not really want to see, if your heart is hard, if you do want to be blind, Jesus will let you be blind. But to those who have ears, to have eyes, to hear and see. His response in verses 35 and 36 to their barrage of questions amounts to, you better figure it out soon because the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He is saying the lights are going out, the now is here, but the now will be gone, is Jesus' point. In the immediate context, he's talking about his death, that the light of the world will be killed. And after that will be the resurrection and the ascension. He'll go to be with the Father. He will no longer be here in bodily presence. No, it is the light, Jesus, his physical presence. You will not always be able to see Jesus with your literal eyes. To be able to come and touch him, and to be able to come and sit down and sup with him. So you better believe in the light while the light is still here. That is what he means to the crowds, to the disciples. We know, because of the New Testament, that that in fact has happened. And that Jesus even said in the upper room, it is better I go to be with my Father than I can send the Holy Spirit. So my presence can be everywhere, not just in Judea. But he is not in the flesh, but he's not, and yet he is not here in the flesh, not now. So the question for us all is what will we do with the light that we have? Jesus is not here to physically shake your hand and look him in the eye after the service, but you have the light of life. If you, we are breathing, we are alive. It's easy to think that we have time. But if one thing we've learned from the last year, we do not know. We do not know how long we have. Physical life, or the light of the world, or even the light operative in your heart. Maybe open to spiritual things. Maybe we know people who want to think about this later. But never neglect what the Spirit is doing in your life now. Never neglect what God is saying to you now. The light that he is revealing to you now about Jesus. I have to remind myself of it. There are times 
when I feel an overwhelming sense to stop what I'm doing and to pray and to read. Because I have to remind myself, if there's something going on spiritually now, stop. The light is with you now. To be in a gospel preaching, Bible teaching church, to be in a gospel church on the Lord's Day, even just with a few of us, is the greatest privilege in all of the world. I truly believe that. Our world talks a lot about privilege, all different kinds of ways we can be privileged. That this is the greatest privilege in the world, to hear about Jesus. It really is. I think, I don't know what the latest is from some of the agencies. I think there are three billion people who don't even know his name. This is the great place of greatest privilege, to be in a church, to have the Bible taught, the gospel proclaimed, is the place of greatest privilege. But it's the place of danger that you can grow so accustomed to the light that you take it for granted and you never bother to see. There's light all around us. In the, there's Bible studies, there's sermons, there's Christian songs, parents, even at school. There's light, light, light. And you never really bother to see, never really to bother walking the light as he is in the light. Never really bother to believe in the light that you might be sons of light. This is the place of greatest privilege and the place of greatest danger that you would become inoculated to the truth of the gospel. There are people all over our country, all over the world. Some of my colleagues are concerned because they think that some people will never come back to church. That Jesus, been there, done that, heard about Jesus, but it's a bit boring to go t t twice on a Sunday. And never really wanted to see, happy to just stumble through, and never open their eyes to see the light. Jesus knew the hour. He knew what awaited him. He knew his death was around the corner. And in a way, it is around the corner for all of us. It could be decades, but it's still around the corner. It's relatively soon. And do we know what awaits us after that? Have you taken provision for the anguish of your soul that you will find in that day? Or have you become so accustomed to the light you will just as soon walk in the darkness? Jesus responds. The Father responds. The spiritual cosmos responds. We need to respond too. Amen.